light a campfire, and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Hello and welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasha and today I'm speaking to Skipper Mareja, Regional Human Resources Manager for NBeyond Botswana. Skipper will be sharing some stories from his career in tourism, from managing lodges in the Okavango Delta to running mobile tented camps in the Chobe National Park. He will also be speaking about his passion for ensuring that local communities benefit from tourism and describing some of the projects that End Beyond and Africa Foundation are running in Botswana to alleviate the challenges faced by the communities living on the borders of its renowned wildlife areas. Skipper, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure that I'm invited to take this interview. Well, it's it's wonderful to have you here because you're really one of the most long-standing and beyonders in Botswana. You've been working for the company for 15 years, I believe, and you actually came to and beyond out of quite a different industry. Could you tell me a little bit about that story? I joined and beyond from a completely different sector or industry. If I can actually break down a little bit of who I am and where I come from, I think the story would make sense. So I originate from this community. And it's a community of about um, 600 people, 80 kilometers north of Maun. When I grew up there, I went to school there. This was in the early 90s. The tourism industry was still young at the time. We had a lot of the private companies were keen to partner with communities because what the government had done at the time was land was, was allocated to communities to help them benefit and to also introduce what I would call mm-hmm. a joint strategy between community development and, and conservation. This was also obviously to try and turn around the situation where we all know back in the years, people did poach in some areas to put food on the table. So to, to reverse that, yeah. you know, to turn around that situation, there was a need for government to provide some kind of substitute. So this actually started whilst I was schooling. So government allocated land to communities and all that, and and private companies started going into partnership with with communities. There's this one company, this one private company that went into partnership with my community. Before a formal partnership would start, a private company would make a proposal, Mm -hmm. like a technical proposal, which comprised of different pledges in terms of how this company was going to help the community develop. So in this proposal, there was a pledge to support the best student Mm -hmm. from my school. Mm. That actually happened. It occurred that I I became the best student in this school and I was was supported. I'm mentioning this because I think it has, it actually, Mm -hmm. it it, it relates quite well with what we do right now as a company, you know, as Africa Foundation to communities. I mean, we'll talk about this in a bit, talking about the CLEF program and, and many mm-hmm. other programs. So it, it really is, it mirrors that. It's, it's more or less the same thing. So I became a beneficiary of, of this arrangement or this program at that age. So my education was subsidized. And I, I use the word subsidized because education in Botswana is free. My education was obviously paid for by government, but this mm-hmm. company still subsidized or helped where it was necessary. So I went uh, through junior school yes. and senior school, you know, under this arrangement. And then sadly, the partnership ended when I completed my senior school. And that's how the arrangement ended. So I am mm-hmm. a direct beneficiary of an arrangement similar to what Africa Foundation and beyond is offering right now. So when I completed school, because of that history and mm-hmm. that, that, that background, when I Absolutely. completed school, 
you know, I went through to tertiary mm-hmm. and I studied uh, human resources development yes. and management. So upon completing my studies, I felt compelled. And I think this feeling came from the fact that I benefited mm-hmm. from this community by way of partnership that, they, that the community had with this company. So I felt compelled to mm-hmm. go back and give back. So I, I went back and I worked in this organization. At the time when I finished school, the community was now in partnership with a different company. Wilderness yes. Company was in the picture. So I worked there in their head office. My role was an in-between the community and the different government institutions. I also managed the relationship between the community and, and patrons and donors and other trade partners. So that is how I started. So it, it came a time where I felt yeah. I needed to now look for something else, to try something else for a new challenge. At that time, I had relatives and my brother was working in the private sector already. He was working for and Beyond as a guide. Mm-hmm. So yes. I, I'd seen how and Beyond treated its employees. I had seen uh, from just you know talking to different people, I'd seen that and Beyond was a visionary company and that um, it had systems that were transformative in terms of how it took care of its people. That is actually what motivated me to try a private sector and uh, an, an opportunity arised within and beyond and I applied and I got a job at Karana as an assistant manager. So you've been involved with wilderness on the outskirts of the tourism economy, but not in the lodges and not in the field itself. So this was quite a new and different approach for you. Very correct. You know, at that time, I was more on the social aspect of the business. I came into the mix representing the community. So I was more coming from the community side Mm -hmm. and and, and the biggest interest was vested in the development of the community more than the commercial side of, of things at the time. Yeah. Okay. And Karana at that stage, I think it was also a brand new lodge. So it must have been quite a different experience for you coming in as assistant manager and helping up with the opening of the new lodge. What were some of the challenges and the opportunities that came with this really dramatic change in direction for you? As you rightly say, it was very challenging given the fact that the lodge was just opening. There's two factors that I would like to allude to here. The one factor is that the lodge opened to guests before construction was finished. You'll agree with me that it presents a challenge where you're trying to build, you know, you have guests that are out here to have a memorable experience, but there's some construction happening on the site. You know, tourism was booming at that time and the occupancies were high. So we had bookings already lined up even before the lodge construction was finished. So that was a challenge. And the other challenge was uh, it being a new lodge at the time. We didn't have systems. Obviously, and beyond already had two lodges running in the Delta, but Grana was, was new and Kudum was also new. So we had to set up everything and in terms of systems and, and all that. So that was quite a challenge, particularly for me as, as it was a new role, a role that I had never performed before. Yeah. And, you know, eventually as part of your job function, you'd actually go on to work in three different and beyond lodges in the Delta. Correct. Yes. I did it at Karana for more than two years. And then from there, I moved to Sandibi. Quite an interesting journey because talking about the old Sandibi, often when I talk about this journey, I don't want to leave out mentioning that at the time Sandibi was standing on its last leg. Yes. Meaning the lodge was, was, was too old. It had a number of challenges with it in terms of its, its operation. 
But I, I did that. We succeeded in running it. I'm always proud when I talk about the story because I still yeah, remember yeah. that at the time we managed to get Sandibi up to position five on TripAdvisor, oh, wow. you know, out of about 55 yeah, lodges in the Delta. So that is mm-hmm. how how successful we were, despite all the challenges mm-hmm. that we had, challenges that came from the fact that the lodge was very old. Mm. You've obviously been right in position there to compare the new Sandibi and having been so so involved in the old one. Does it still feel like the same place to you? It does, you know, it does in a way feel like it's the same place because what is actually special about about Sandibi, I know we, we have a beautiful lodge there right now, but what is special is the location more than anything. Sandibi shares boundary with Moremi Game mm-hmm. Reserve. And on the other side, southern side okay. of it, we have uh, Chiefs Island. And this, this place is actually renowned for their wildlife in abundance. So that hasn't changed. It's still the same. So each time I'm there, although there's an appreciation of, of you know, a new lodge, but, but it feels it's still the same. It still actually holds that position. I yeah. always refer to it as a hot spot. Mm-hmm. It is a place where if mm-hmm. you meet people that are, you know, after animals, they want to see game. That is the place to go. In that respect, it still feels the same. Okay. And I know this might be a very unfair question, but do you have a favorite out of the Delta Lodges that you've worked at? One of the challenging questions, I've had guests ask me this question and, and I I don't know, it, it probably comes from the fact that I, I'm, I'm generally diplomatic and I struggle to answer. I think for me, it depends on what uh, we are talking about because our lodges, although they are situated mm-hmm. or is situated in the Delta, they are unique and, and each one of them has got its own charm, if I can call it that. I like Sandibi for the fact that um, it is situated in an area that has a lot of game. So from that perspective, I like it more than more than the others. Yes. I liked Karana mm-hmm. for the fact that it actually offers the, the true Delta experience. When we talk Delta, is is water. That is the way you get that experience mm-hmm. from. So right now, I struggle to actually pinpoint one and say I like this over others. The answer is normally made easier by being specific as to what we are talking about, whether it's game and you know, or the Delta experience that I, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely, I understand. After your time in the Delta, you moved on, I believe, to Kasane and you looked after the under-canvas camps situated at Chobi and Savuti. Could you tell me a little bit about these camps and how they differ from a standard lodge setup? True, I was very privileged actually to have been exposed in different facets of this business, having worked at three lodges in the Delta and or, or looked after the mobiles as well, I found that to be a completely different you know, set of challenges running the mobiles. The under canvases in nature, the business in nature meant that you know the lodges kept moving. So every five days you have to bring mm-hmm. down the lodge and move to another area. It's, it's actually quite labor intensive in that respect. Also, what's, what's going to be noted here, it's not the, like the rustic you know, basic camping that other companies yes. provide. We try all that we can to mm. provide luxury. So the spills and thrills that you get in the lodges are provided at, at these camps. So mm-hmm. that made it quite challenging. What is being produced, for instance, out of the kitchen, it's, it's incredible. Out of nothing, you still get the same quality of food that the lodges, yeah. the lodges offer. 
And it is so because our guests travel the circuit and you, you wouldn't want to have a like a double standard, if I may call mm-hmm. it that, where the one product offers something completely different to the other. So it was challenging in that respect, but interesting at the same time. So it's the same level of experience, but it's just much more difficult because of the circumstances to provide it. Absolutely. That is what we obviously endeavor to do, provide the same quality and same level of experience. Yeah, sure. So after this journey through the lodges and pretty much through and beyond Botswana circuit, you then came back to your original core, you know, what you studied for, and you are currently the regional human resources manager. Correct. As part of that, you're responsible for the training and the development of the and beyond staff in Botswana. Can you talk a little bit about that and the kind of training that takes place and the kind of interventions that happen with our staff? A lot of what we do in terms of training in our lodges is is on the job. Learning happens every day. So there is continuous on-the-job training that takes place Mm -hmm. at each lodge. We do also have... um, extensive and structured training for, for some departments. Absolutely. I, I will use an example of the guiding team or the field team. Mm. Guiding team, for instance, mm-hmm. we, we have we have guide trainers and, and from time to time, guides gets pulled out of the operation to go through quite mm-hmm. an extensive training. It could be, you know, like a walking training yeah. and or a rifle handling training, a health and safety training. Yeah, so we, we do a lot of that same same applies to the kitchen. And also we have a localization program that we run in Botswana where mm-hmm. a few individuals have been identified based on the demonstration of potential. And they go through this this training. It's quite a, yeah. a, a structured and uh, and coordinated uh, training that, that we do. And then over and above that, we outsource training. I mean, of recent, we have had trainers come from South Africa to offer coffee training, wine training. All this takes place in our lodges. Okay. You also have something that starts to overlap a little bit into your other area of responsibility, which is sort of uh, community relationships. And that, I think, is the Star in Training Programme. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it works? The Stein training program, it's been three years now that we've been running it quite successfully. How it happens is we go into the communities that we have a relationship with and we identify individuals that uh, we felt are trainable and and we would bring them into our lodges for on-the-job training. This is mainly for departments like kitchen and um, the service department, being the butlers or the waiters. These candidates will then be taken through a journey of normally mm-hmm. it's, it's three months. Once they have completed their journey and, and we feel that they have acquired all the necessary skills and, and where opportunities are available, we employ them. I can yes. tell you now with, with absolute confidence that uh, this program has been very successful in that we do have candidates that are employed as chefs, qualified chefs in our main kitchens. At Sandibi, we do have here, right here where I am at, at, at Ngabeja, we have a candidate in the main kitchen whom we employed uh, through this program. That's pretty amazing. And it's really a wonderful program, I think, to provide that on-the-job training and to, to take somebody with absolutely no experience and, and turn them into a chef that could literally walk into any lodge and probably be employed. Absolutely, without a doubt. It has a great story behind it, also taking into account that these people come from communities. This actually addresses one of the challenges that the communities are facing, which is a lack Mm. of skill and lack of employment. 
and uh, which is why we target these communities. Mm. And it actually it has proven to mm. to be possible. As I say, they are shining. It's amazing. Yeah, mm. that's great. You've almost come full circle to where you're once again performing that role of sort of liaison with the communities and fostering and growing relationships with them. Why is it so essential for and beyond to have those close ties? to the communities? And what are some of the opportunities and challenges that this brings? I have grown to appreciate and know that conservation, which is which is one of the things that we stand for as a business, conservation and community development cannot be divorced. They have to live together. There is no way that conservation will be mm-hmm. successful if communities are not realizing any form of benefits coming out of conservation itself mm-hmm. and, and and vice versa and having said that i think it's it's important in that regard that we yeah. have some kind of relationship it's a joint strategy for community and conservation that is the reason why it's important for nbeyond to have close ties with communities is mm-hmm. because whether we believe it or not the resources that our business is is reliant on is looked after mm-hmm. by the nearby communities and they are the direct custodians of, of this so we have to bring them into the picture and the only way of doing that is if we make sure that they benefit from these resources yeah we it have had conversation many conversations with my colleagues at africa foundation and say mm-hmm. you know we, it's not possible that you go to a community and ask them to look after animals and and leave and think that they will do but by providing community development, it's a powerful statement to say that though there is conflict, obviously, that people are, are experiencing, but there's how you can survive and you know, live out of these resources. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's, I think that's the crucial thing is to getting the communities to start viewing the wildlife as a resource in ways other than just a source of food, but as a resource that actually brings benefits to them. Absolutely. Yeah. That is actually had a very long tail and a long impact in in changing people's mindset towards how they viewed natural resources. I still remember a long time ago, because this is also done in extensive consultation with government and and all other relevant stakeholders. Mm -hmm. There's like a great collaboration that takes place there. So a long time ago, a minister of tourism came to my community to assess progress and to see where things were at and all that. And uh, one of the local chiefs stood up and said, listen, from the work that this program has done, the mindset of my people have changed completely, entirely, mm-hmm. such that right now when somebody sees an impala, they no longer see it as meat. They look at it as money. So that is how much this program is able to to shift people's mindset towards how they viewed natural resources. And, and that actually translate into a successful conservation initiative. It's a very big shift and a key one. Skipper, a little earlier on, you mentioned Africa Foundation. Can you describe a little bit how and beyond partners with Africa Foundation to work with the communities? And, you know, also how far back does this relationship that we have with communities, with Africa Foundation, how far back does it go? The relationship between and beyond and Africa Foundation, it's like a strategic partnership where Africa Foundation looks after the social aspect of who we are and and beyond, obviously, is on the commercial side of things. If you look at our business and our impact model, 
you will see that we obviously exist to leave the world in a better place, better than we found it. But we also appreciate that what enables us to do that is a business that we are running. So in the heart of, of that is the experience that we provide to our guests and the stories that we tell. That is what makes it possible for us to be able to make the impact that we are making in, in communities. So, so that in, in a nutshell, that is how the relationship works. Africa Foundation, obviously, is a not-for-profit making organization. We are working in uh, four communities. Mm. We have two communities that are on the fence line. You know, the Buffalo fence close to where we operate. And there's another community about 10 kilometers out of Mount where we are building a school. And uh, we've just enrolled another community mm -hmm. about 35 or so kilometers out of Mount. If I can start with the two communities on the fence line, the communities are called Tutubeja and Hohomoha. We enrolled these communities mm. in 2007 after obviously realizing that they were close to where we run business and yes. um, that what we did impacted mm. them directly. And they also, the activities taking place in the communities impacted our business in one way or the other we found it relevant that we have a partnership with them. So we went in there and investigated. We did a needs analysis and all that and ended up where we are. So right now we've provided them with portable water and we've introduced all the other programs like CLEF and Stein Training. And back in 2012, this is obviously before I became the HR, we started a relationship with a community called Sekata, about 10 kilometers out, outside Maun. How we went into that community mm -hmm. is one of the staff members alerted Africa Foundation about the need for a school in there. And obviously, this employee knew that mm -hmm. and beyond or Africa Foundation could intervene in a situation like that. And so we went in there and um, with government, we, we did our due diligence and it became clear that the community was in dire need of a primary school. And uh, we did all the necessary formalities, the application of, of land and approvals that were needed and all that. Mm -hmm. So this process requires an extensive mm -hmm. consultation. And, and how we do it at Africa Foundation is from the word go, we make sure that all the relevant yes. stakeholders are on board, especially the community, because our approach is such that we don't do things for communities. We, don't, we do things with mm -hmm. communities. We went into this journey like that from 2012 did all the, the due diligence until it became clear from government that a school is needed there. It was always in the okay. in, in the government plans, but because of being shorthanded in terms of you know finances, they could not implement it at the time. That's how we came into the picture and, and we we started mm -hmm. building a school. That actually dates far back as 2012. So that's been one of the longest running projects that NBeyond has had. And I believe that, that recently the school was actually able to open. Can you talk a little bit about Correct. that and, and the success of that? And also, if there are any plans for the future for that particular school or for the community, actually, as well. The school opened doors January last year. At long last, it opened doors to the kids. And this has been a very mm -hmm. successful project. The difference that it has done in the community is quite immense. It has created employment where community members work at the school as cleaners, chefs, and you name it. We have four grades that are going to this school because mm -hmm. right now mm -hmm. the school comprises two blocks of, of two classrooms. So it's, it's four, four classrooms in total, which is why I'm saying uh, four grades are going there. 
we targeted the youngest peoples from the age of six. So standard one up mm-hmm. to standard four are actually going to this school as we speak. And and also government has, has been able to introduce a kindergarten program or a preschool program, which wouldn't have been possible if kids were still going to Matapaneng. The challenge was that before the school was built, kids were walking an average of eight kilometers every day to go mm-hmm. to the nearest school. And, and that brought with it quite a lot of uh, social ills and challenges. Drop out from school, the possibilities of being knocked down by cars as they walked along the road, conflicts with animals. It brought with it a lot of social ills. I mean, kids would arrive at school very late and they've missed on some of the lessons and they'll leave school early, missing on the, some extracurricular activities. So those were the challenges that necessitated this intervention and in the construction of, of the school. So in terms of the future, because of the scope of the project, which is enormous, the decision was that we, we deliver it in phases. And uh, so far, we've been able to, to do two phases. So the first phase was to build one block of two classrooms and uh, fence the, the area, a, a kitchen and, uh, and ablution as well as the water connection. And right now we are waiting for the, the power connection to the school. We have the buy-in mm-hmm. from government and, and all the support throughout this, this process. The government has been supporting us. So mm-hmm. we, we have no doubt that ultimately we will provide a fully fledged school as it has been pledged. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful project. It's really amazing. Skipper, you mentioned the two other communities that, that End Beyond has been working with, Tsutsubeha and Hohomoha. When you talked about them, you said the location was close to to the fence, and this is the buffalo fence that you're talking about. Is that right? Correct. Correct, yes. Just um, for those of our listeners, you know, because this is quite a quite a different concept to a lot of people, can you describe what the buffalo fence is and what are the implications of living close to it for the communities that surround it? Yeah. This phase came about as a result of the foot and mouth disease, which is the buffaloes are believed to live with that disease. So there was a need, a long time ago, there was a need for government to erect this fence to separate the buffaloes from the um, domesticated animals. It's a very deadly disease for, for cattle. To avoid them mixing up cattle and buffalo, there was a need to erect yeah. this, mm-hmm. this, this fence. Also, I think it's worthwhile to mention that a lot of the communities Mm -hmm. up in the north here are farmers. So they keep cattle and they cultivate. And these two communities I'm talking about are no different. So they do that for a living. And because Mm -hmm. they are situated right on the fence, it's not an electric fence that we are talking about. It's just an ordinary fence. The challenges are from time to time, predators go through the fence. Lions would go through the fence. Elephants obviously walk over the fence to flatten the fields. Lions will go in and eat cattle. And these are some of the challenges that these communities have. The human-wildlife conflict in these two communities is prevalent more than mm-hmm. in other areas because of mm-hmm. their geographical yeah. location. Okay, so that, that is a challenge. And then also the communities aren't normally allowed to go across the fence. Is that right? Very correct. Like- because the other, the other side of the fence, the other side of the fence is, is reserved for tourism. So they are not allowed to do the normal activities that they did in the past, you know, the harvesting mm-hmm. of natural resources, grasses. And th- this side of the fence where the delta is, has mm-hmm. been regulated such that yeah. no activities is taking place from the communities. 
so that that presents a challenge as well because it it obviously diminishes some of the options that they had mm, for mm. survival yeah it's quite understandable you know that it's a big challenge to present conservation and wildlife as a positive to communities like this who have so many challenges that are created by the wildlife that you just spoke about absolutely yeah. Skipper, you also mentioned that the main project that we've worked on with these communities was water provision boreholes. Now, it sounds so counterintuitive because you're talking about the Delta, which is this beautiful watery wonderland, and everybody's yes. got this image in their heads of these beautiful crystal clear channels of water. And yet water is such an issue for the communities that live around the fence. Can you describe why this is such a problem? And you know, what have we been doing to try and, and resolve yeah. it as well? I agree entirely with you that it would sound contradicting that, you know, we, we're talking about communities that are adjacent to the Delta system, yet, the, you know, they have a water situation or challenge. The reality is that the, the Delta water system comes and goes. We have times where the Delta dries out completely, and there's a, there's a time where, you know, the floods would come. So that's how it works, number one. And it being delta water, I mean, from a health perspective, it's not obviously recommended for drinking sometimes. When it flows, it's believed to, to be okay and fresh, and it's okay for human consumption because it goes through natural filtrations. But when the water goes down, it's bound to be contaminated because it's surface and it's open. So clearly there was a need. If I look back two years ago, you probably have heard about it as well, where Botswana experienced this out-of-the-ordinary drought spell. So I still remember when we engaged these communities and we started going through or understanding what they were going through, their challenges and uh, they, there was a consensus to say, listen here, we have a lot of challenges, but what we see as priorities is water because we believe whatever development that may happen in the future uh, requires the availability of water. So which was, I think it was a, was a really thoughtful and, and very smart thinking. So that is what both the two communities said, that the first thing or top on the list would be the water provision. And that is how we started this this water project. Boreholes have been dug in, in the communities and solar systems have been installed. And each community has got a, its own system. Yeah, and it seems to be working quite well. Right now, life situation there has improved dramatically in that people have potable water in their areas. And I can imagine this must have just become all the more important in you know, in the context of COVID and the importance of of hygiene and of constantly being able to wash your hands, which you actually can't do if you don't have access to water. Oh, certainly. You know, when COVID hit, we had only achieved one unit. We had only managed one borehole. But then Africa Foundation's fundraising team had to work around the clock, like work hard to find money for the other borehole. And, and it was purely because it was found to be very critical now and necessary because of the hygiene requirement. That helped quite significantly during this time. And that wasn't the only impact of COVID. I'm sure that most of these communities found themselves without a means of making an income because of lockdown restrictions and all of the other challenges that came around COVID. What else did and beyond do as a response? I know that there was quite a, a food provision drive. Can you talk a little bit about that and 
how many families we managed to help feed. You, you are very right that we had to intervene in a number of ways. Although the water project was always on the cards, we had to expedite there and move fast to provide another boho for another community. In addition to that, because of the, mm-hmm. the, the closure of the industry, you know, a lot of the communities in the north work in the tourism industry. And because of the closures and all that, opportunities diminished. Mm-hmm. And people had to go home and uh, with with no means of bringing food on the table. So Africa Foundation agreed to intervene in terms of giving out food handouts. We did support a total of 165 families. Mm-hmm. And this happened mm-hmm. three times. We started when COVID started and after two months mm-hmm. we, we went in. The last food distribution was in December. And as I say, 165 families, and and you know, it's it is believed that uh, every yeah. family would have an average of eight members behind it. So it's it's a lot of people that we've helped. If you look at it uh, from that uh, from that perspective, mm, absolutely. And now, understand it's not usually part of the way that the. Africa Foundation model works or the and beyond model works because it's more about creating sustainable projects rather than than handouts. But it's just something that was so incredibly necessary at this point as a response to what was going on, you know, in those communities, wasn't it? Absolutely. You are very right, yeah. And we also made it clear to the communities that uh, although this is this is uh, not the norm for Africa Foundation to do, it is justifiable that it is done against the situation that, I mean, everybody found themselves yeah. in. You know, when lockdowns happened and these communities actually isolated, they are away from towns. So there was no way that uh, anyone would go to town to buy food. People didn't have any yeah. means, any revenue to their families. But that's how difficult it was, and, and which is why in the end, everybody agreed that this, regardless of whether it's something we've mm. done or not, it's necessary. Absolutely. Skipper, I'd like to go back and talk in a little bit more depth about something that you've mentioned a couple of times now, and that is the CLEF project or the Community Leadership Education Fund, to give it its full name. Can you describe this a little bit? Talk about how the project works and about the community members from Botswana that have actually been recipients of a CLEF bursary. CLEF, as you said, the Community Leaders Education Fund program was introduced two years ago for the first time. And it's been running for many years in other regions, but uh, we, we only introduced it here recently. How it works is uh, it targets candidates from, from the communities that we already you know have a relationship with. And it's candidates that demonstrate their ability and, and, and potential to occupy leadership positions in future. We go into a community and we you know advertise for people to show interest and we would run interviews. Some of the panelists would be the community leaders in form of the village development committees, the courses, you know, chief would sit in, in that as well, just to bring in an element of transparency and, and also for them to appreciate how it's done. So we'd run this interview and then we'll identify candidates that are the best candidate, basically. So it's also Worthwhile to note that the learner or the candidate will decide where they want to study and what, what they want to study. It doesn't have to necessarily be something related to tourism. It has to be something that is in sync and you know, is aligned with their, their passion, that they are passionate about. Because the belief here is that you, you only succeed if you are doing something that you've got passion on. That's how it works. Also, this actually happens at the same time in all the regions. So adverts will go out at the same time and, and interviews will run at more or less the same time. So when applications come through, we would put them in one pot 
when I say one port, I mean South Africa would have its applications and um, Kenya, Namibia, and, and all this will go into one port and we identify the best students. And having said that, it means there's a possibility that the best students could be from South Africa or could be from Botswana. Or from, but I can say to you now, proudly tell you that the first time we, we did this, we had two candidates that emerged or that, yes. that were successful, that were picked up mm-hmm. for the program. The one candidate was from Tutubeja yeah. and the other candidate from Hohomoha. The candidate from Tutubeja was studying early childhood education for four years at di- diploma level. Um, she has just finished now and she's doing her practicals. The other student was studying management and administration, which lasted for two years. She completed, and the last time I checked with her, she mm-hmm. was still looking for a job. But obviously, because of what COVID did now, the, the opportunities are quite limited. You know, academically, they've done exceedingly well, these two candidates, proving that um, they, there's talents in these communities. That's how the CLEF program works in, in, a, in a nutshell. Giving a bursary to this, this student doesn't mean that we guarantee employment to this is why it's it's open and they can decide what they want to do, not necessarily anything that uh, is similar to our business. Absolutely. But it is providing that opportunity for further education. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Skipper, to end off with, we spoke about some of the yeah. issues about how difficult it is to link conservation in a good light with the local communities and how important it is for them to realize the value of, of wildlife and of protecting the environment. And I know that one of the ways that and beyond usually does that is through conservation lessons with the local communities. But obviously, it's so much more challenging when the communities are so much further from your lodges. And it's not that easy to just bring them in for a day and, you know, show them the wildlife and explain to them why it's so important. How do you manage that? How do you actually manage to do those conservation lessons in a context where this is so different and so challenging. I agree that it's it's quite it's quite a challenge because I've been to other regions. I've been to I had the privilege of visiting East Africa and um, and I've seen how easy it is where guests would do their normal morning activity and and coming back, you know, they would have their meals and then they go to the community nearby community where it's just a short. With us, it's it's different. Communities are far out there, the nearest. I mean, these communities that are on the fence line, it's uh, like a two to two and a half to three hours drive, depending on the weather, on the road condition, of course. So it's it's quite, it's, it's not easy. So what we've done in the past is I would assemble a team of employees, mainly the rangers, and uh, I would take them through um, the program that, that I, would, I would want us to share or information that I would want us to share with the community. And then we would make an arrangement with the school for us to visit it. So this has been successful and there's a, an amazing buy-in from the community and the schools. And then we would go in there to spend time with the kids and educate them. I still remember the one topic that we, that we spoke about was elephants and the conflict that they bring. And it was amazing to see how much people didn't know about elephants. It was incredible. We, I'm talking about the Mount community. Kids that are 
some of whom come from remote communities and and we we often would would assume that they, you know they know this they, they live with it but it's incredible how much they don't know about the wildlife this has been well received we've done that a couple of times we've done it in communities as well not just schools but communities and for me before you even talk about the provision of tangible developments like we talk now about schools building of schools or digging boreholes this is the first thing that needs to happen is to sensitize and make sure that communities understand the reason why you do what you do. Upfront, I'll would, I would do a lot of conservation lessons. This consultation process that I'm talking about has to actually be in the framework of educating people about these resources in the end, telling them why we do what we do. Because otherwise, the partnership would not mean anything without that. So we, we've done a lot of that, like going to the schools, going to the communities to talk about this. But also we've done once, I approached a senior school. It's a senior school in Maon. And uh, interestingly, when I approached them, I found out that government had actually given each senior school in Botswana a theme. And, the, and the, this senior school in Maon was given a theme about tourism. So I went to talk to them about conservation. And little yes. did I know that there's this arrangement and when they told me about it, I, I was actually, mm-hmm. I was quite amazed because then it's, it's the same thing that mm-hmm. I want mm-hmm. to achieve that, that is being introduced in schools. So we, we spoke about that and they identified the kids. We mm-hmm. brought in about 16 students from mm-hmm. this high school into the Delta. So yes. we did a day trip, a drive all the way from Mount through the fence and we brought them to Karana. So it was a game, like a game experience on the way. And they had some lecturers when they arrived at Karana where the guides came out to share information about the Delta, about the animals and about. Oh, wow. This was absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, these things aren't right now happening because of COVID, but it it does wonders. It does wonders to the communities in terms of um, creating or enlightening them about the industry that we are in. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's it's as challenging as it may be. It's so important to lay that basis. Exactly. Skipper, thank you so much. It's been really, really fascinating talking to you. Thank you for sharing your experiences and also for giving us a wonderful overview of how things work in Botswana and what it is that End Beyond and Africa Foundation are doing in there. Thanks again. It's been great to speak to you. It's an absolute pleasure. And uh, and as I said earlier, I feel it's an honor for me to have been given this opportunity. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Leave Our World a Better Place. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find out more about And Beyond, please log on to our website at andbeyond.com.